I'm Kelly Llewellyn. And I'm Greg Homme. And this is Caveman and Counselor. Well, hello again and welcome to Caveman and Counselor, the podcast that delves into the world of mental health and recovery. Hosted by licensed marriage and family therapist Kelly Llewellyn and me, Greg Homme, your advocate for all things behavioral health. This episode will focus on anxiety, which is the most common behavioral health condition. In the U.S. alone, anxiety affects 40 million adults annually. Yeah, you know, Greg, uh, many people say that avoiding uh, what makes you anxious is the best coping strategy. Um, You know, I would agree if that's a bear, uh, but avoidance can actually reinforce anxiety over time. People also believe that anxiety disorders will eventually go away on their own, but without facing and learning to manage anxiety, uh, anxiety disorders can persist and even worsen in the long run. That's not to be said about normal anxiety, right? Everyone feels anxiety, especially over a test or a job interview. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's uh, right. Everyone feels anxiety, but not everyone has anxiety disorder just because they're having moments of anxiety. The difference is anxiety tends to subside once the situation over and a natural response to keep us focused and alert. I mean, it's really helpful. Uh, But anxiety disorders are persistent, excessive, and intense worry and fear about everyday situations, often with no apparent reason. Uh, It can lead to physical symptoms like rapid heartbeat, sweating and trembling, and our doctor will talk about more. Uh, So it's important that if you feel your anxiety um, is more long-term and just not going away, you should seek out professional help. And remember, we aim to enhance the understanding of anxiety, but this podcast is for informational purposes only, is not a substitute for professional advice. So today we're going to welcome a good friend, Dr. Krista Burris. She's an internist um, and also a pediatric uh, physician, um, and she's here to discuss the physiology of anxiety. Uh, she, you know, what she tells me is that primaries see anxiety all day long. Fifty percent of their office visits are due to psychological issues. Additionally, we have uh, James Gallegos, an associate marriage and family therapy um, and clinical director of programming for adults and adolescents who are requiring a higher level of care. Together, we're going to explore personal stories, different types of anxiety disorders, coping strategies, and the latest research findings. Our discussion should resonate with mental health professionals, those living with anxiety, and anyone wanting to gain a comprehensive understanding of anxiety disorders. So, Settle in, grab your notepad, and prepare to learn about anxiety. And don't forget to share and follow Caveman and Counselor and leave us a review, please. Uh, Thanks for joining us, and let's get into it. So we have two guests today here, Dr. Krista and and James. Dr. Krista, would you like to just introduce yourself a little bit? Sure. My name is Dr. Krista Burris, and I'm an internal medicine doctor and pediatrics. So um, some people may not be familiar with that, but it kind of functions like a family practice doctor. And I've been around um, the valley now for about 20 years. And before that was in San Diego and worked with families of all kinds and urgent cares and homeless shelter and um, currently have my own practice. But what I found is that I'm really interested in this topic because I myself have seen anxiety in my own life and I see it very frequently in patients. In fact, 
my first day of work um, was 9-11 as a as a um, just brand new minted uh, physician. And so I spent my first week of practice dealing with people who were really affected by that event. Um, So it's kind of been sort of with me my whole career. Wow. Thank you, Dr. Krista. Wow. And James? Yeah, so my name is James Gagos. Um, I am a associate marriage and family uh, therapist. Uh, I've been in the field for about, both in, in grad school and in post-grad for about three years now. Um, I'm the clinical director for our mental health outpatient services at Desert Marriage and Family Counseling. Uh, that just means that I meet with adults and teens and uh, find out better ways to support them, you know, uh, where maybe just individual therapy isn't enough um, for our for for their support and to to help with what they're going through, and then um, I help coordinate the care with our IOP and PHP programs. IOP is intensive outpatient programming, and PHP is partial hospitalization programming, and those are just higher levels of care that I help coordinate and run um, for the agency. Really okay. quick, I'd like to say that that uh, intensive outpatient is just more sessions and during the week mm. and PHP it's a, it's kind of a misnomer it's not really about being hospitalized it's just a longer duration during the but week it's more services. than just a longer duration too there are you you're your people are experiencing different um, kinds of therapies throughout oh, yeah. that day throughout yeah. that day okay welcome everybody and thank you for being here let's go ahead and get into it um, you know dr. Krista um, James jump on at any time uh, my dog is playing his squeaky toy in the background. What is an anxiety order, and how does it differ from everyday stress or nervousness? Well, um, so there's a few different types of uh, anxiety disorders, and um, they differ from, you know, normal stress or, you know, even we use the same word anxiety that, that a lot of people experience um, in the ways that it really affects our daily living. You know, it's it's to the point where it's it's really causing some damage in you know, our relationships, our ability to work, uh, participate in school, and so on. Um, but there's, there's a few different types. Um, but yeah, that's, it's, it's very apparent uh, that it's more than just you know, stress. Stress. Okay, so mm-hmm. it's really when it begins to get in the way of your daily activities of living in some way or another. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Dr. Krista, mm-hmm. from a physiological perspective, what is stress um, versus, you know, there's stress, there's you stress. We know you stress is good. That's EU stress, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but what is the difference with anxiety? How is that different in our body when it becomes problematic? So in general, we can think about stress as anything that challenges the, um, the homodynamic state of an organism so anything that stresses uh, an organism is um something okay that- go go back just a second dr krista uh explain to greg what you meant by <laughs> okay. um, I was just gonna those say, words oh, dynamic. what the hell is that so said, is that ahead. a new dancer I, if you could imagine just like you know a slug sitting on a rock and it's happy and it's sitting there it doesn't have to do anything but then it rains and the slug starts to slip off the rock and has to move. Or the sun comes out and it starts to dry out and it needs to do something. Or it starts to um, dehydrate, <laughs> you know. These, <laughs> these are all bad things. These are all things <laughs> that- These are not, not, not a happy time. things. They're not a happy slug so life. So anything that sort of <laughs> forces you to 
do something or react in a way um, in response to an, a stimulus, which could be mm -hmm. from the inside of you or from the outside of you. So that's a yes. really basic way to think about stress. And I think it helps to do that because not all stress comes from negative stuff. Like some stress no. comes from really good things going on. And sometimes people don't count the good stress when they're thinking about how much stress they're under. Yeah, exactly. Would you talk about good stress that is still has a physiological you know, effect on our body? Right, sure. What kind of events would those would be? Um, Anything, again, that's requiring energy from you, uh, whether it's um, emotional energy, like say you're going to a reunion and you're going to meet all these people you haven't seen and you're really looking forward to it, but it still requires effort and, you know, a little bit of emotional output because you've got to mm -hmm. talk to new people, you've got to plan the trip, you've got to get there. Mm -hmm. So a vacation is another example of a stress. Yes, you've got to often travel or, you know, change a routine in some way, which can be very stressful for people. So all of those things actually get in the way of us feeling relaxed. Um, and often, like a slug, like yeah, a happy slug on a rock. A happy slug on a rock. No one's asking mm -hmm. anything of you and you kind of feel like, I'm good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, you have children, so nothing you've experienced for a very long right. time. <laughs> it's like, I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> so when you, but you're, it's interesting because you did point that out. You know, you got the slug on the rock. These natural events occur. All animals, natural events, stress is good because it makes us move. It makes us protect ourselves, save our life, the run away from the bear, whatever it is. Um, but there are events, like you said, be those external that maybe we've we've seen as a maladaptive cue that that's going to hurt me. Okay, and you know, when I think of that with clients who are traumatized or experience trauma, if I think of a woman who was sexually assaulted when she was a child by a paternal family member, and he usually had beer on his breath, she might find that she reacts physiologically to beer. She doesn't know why that is. So that's an external stress that the olfactory experience of smelling beer is not really dangerous, right? Right. So that's a maladaptive, I mean, that James would be working on with his patients, that is a maladaptive response to a stimulus that is not threatening. As to where if somebody's yelling at me and really aggressive, well, I do want to utilize my fight, faint, freeze, um, what's the fourth one now? Fight, faint, faint, freeze, fawn, fain, um, you know, in order to uh, survive that situation. Mm -hmm. Really, really great response. What happens physically, physiologically? Would you talk about the chemicals that are occurring yeah. in the person that are happening in the person's body and why they why they matter um, and what's good about them, what's bad about them? So, when we think about this, we we separate it into what we call acute stress and chronic stress. So, acute stress is something happens like say you have that trigger or someone's yelling at you. So, mm -hmm. in that moment, your adrenaline levels are going to go through the roof. Your blood pressure is going to go up. Your heart rate's going to go up. You might feel shaky, sick at your stomach. Mm -hmm. um, you might even break out in a cold sweat. And for some people, feel short of breath, dizzy, even mm -hmm. chest pain. Um, oh. So all of those things can be happening. And sometimes people don't understand that what triggered it is a stressful event or mm. um and they'll actually come into the doctor for having symptoms, but not have connected it to anxiety. Oh. 
So really? that's really common. And often it's because they haven't figured out that an event or some type of environment is stressful for them. So one example of this is a child that's coming home frequently from school with a stomach ache. And um, it's part of the job as a primary care doctor is to try to tease apart when anxiety might be playing a role in the symptoms that people have. Mm -hmm. um, chronic stress is different. That's the stress that people live on with for a day in, day out for long periods of time. And that has um, much higher effects on the body, much more damaging effects, because that long-term high levels of stress hormones, including the adrenaline and the cortisol, um, lead to problems with weight gain, with high blood pressure, even diabetes, um, sleep problems, um, even uh, heart attacks and heart failure can be associated with it. So it's, it's more of a combination mental and physical issue than most people realize. Yeah, 50%, you said, come into the office, mm -hmm. the doctor's office, with some kind of psychological concern causing a physiological response. Well, I think the you point know. she's making, too, that a lot of time they're not even aware of the, the, the connection. Yes. Right. That you've got such true. high levels of stress and you feel like crap all the time. Right. You're thinking, well, something's wrong with me physically yeah. rather than... Often people think it's yeah. they're fatigued from hormones or... And they are hormones, but they're not the hormones they're thinking of. That they're thinking yeah. of. Well, and James, you can speak to that from a culture perspective. We know, you know, in Latin culture, mm -hmm. that there's a lot more somatization of yeah. emotional problems. Uh, uh, what's yeah. somatization? <laughs> James, would you explain? <laughs> um, well, that is, you know, the it's almost like the transfer of, you know, um, something that we're thinking or feeling um, and having it really come out in our bodies physically and displaying physically. Um, so if it's nervousness, anxiety um, at any level, you know, my hands sweating, uh, my voice trembling, things like that. Um, so it's it's really the, the feeling and the thoughts turning into something that you can see or experience physically. And one thing that I learned um, when I moved to the Valley is that a lot of those feelings and descriptors of physical symptoms can vary by cultural background. Um, so I started working mm -hmm. with a local population that was complaining about air under their skin in Spanish. And I, in medical terms, that's a very specific problem that has to do with a punctured lung and very rare. And so I was confused, but really what they were describing was more like this feeling that they couldn't get a deep breath in. Um, but they were describing it differently. So um, that's one thing to keep in mind uh, if you do work with people and they're from a different culture is to actually make sure you understand what they're saying. Yeah. yeah. You know, when we were in training, you know, uh, James and I both in training at grad school, you know, we learned to always make sure we refer out to a physiotherapist clients physically examined to make sure there wasn't a physiological reason for what they were presenting with, which we do. But certainly it's also important for those, for doctors and other healthcare professionals to make sure that they're checking those, those psychological, emotional reasons that somebody might be having those experiences. Mm -hmm. Like I just had to step away from our podcast because my puppy decided 
the little round disc that that um, charges my Apple Watch um, had to be disconnected from the cord, so he did that for me. And I wanted to oh, make sure God. that I got a little spike in adrenaline and cortisol, making sure he didn't swallow that. <laughs> so we didn't go visit a, a animal doctor like you, Dr. Dr. Griffith. Well, I, I think it's interesting how you guys were explaining how, how your patients, Dr. Krista, don't realize that it could possibly be explained by, you know, a mental or um, uh, some sort of mental um, situation going on or, or a disorder that's causing those physiological symptoms. I think it goes both ways um, because sometimes our clients will come in, you know, they're telling us about their, their levels of depression, what they're experiencing, anxiety as well, and, you know, we, we ask a simple question of, when was the last time you saw your doctor? Um, they can't even think of how long it's been, years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and we can see, but obviously we don't diagnose anything having to do with that realm. Um, but the, there could possibly be some physiological um, issues that are causing yes. you know, th- this level of stress and anxiety. James, you would see those kinds of things like blood, pre- like, um, blood pressure, um, mm-hmm. sugar, blood sugar, uh, mm-hmm. hormonal issues anything yeah. else we're missing there dr krista um oh there's Brain lots injuries. but even mm-hmm. even things mm-hmm. like thyroid disorders um of course and yeah. and diagnosed diabetes you know if your mm-hmm. metabolism's all off you don't feel good at all and it, no. it's very hard to feel happy yeah mm-hmm. we sure see that in our eating disorder patients are either depressed or anxious mm-hmm. You know, because it's a, just a it's just a basic food issue. Okay. Well, you know, I've I've seen oh, okay. a um, a client who uh, he's been diagnosed for since he was I think like seven or eight with uh, type one diabetes. And I have diabetes myself, and he did not take care of it uh, for the longest time. It was whether it was out of ignorance or lack of education or you know, on purpose. Um, and he was describing all these symptoms. And mm. because I have type 1 diabetes, I was like, oh, I bet your blood sugar was low. Or, oh, I bet your <laughs> blood sugar was high. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But he thought it was anxiety. And maybe, it, you know, I don't know the, the inner workings of that, but maybe it did de- eventually develop into anxiety or depression. But um, it was just very interesting to see how the lack of physical self-care and attention to, you know, what he had um, could and may have, you know, ended affecting his uh, anxiety levels. Mm-hmm. You know, now that we're on that subject, Dr. Krista, you are a pediatrician, um, and how do anxiety disorders manifest in children? And what are some signs that parents should be looking for? James has got a couple little ones at home. <laughs> I do, I do. They're only one in three, so yeah, well, not any time, trouble James. yet. <laughs> All kinds of stuff's going to happen in the next 15 years, I'm trust sure. me. I'm so, sure. um, Remember, Kelly, thing- <laughs> glass half full. <laughs> Yes. Half full, okay. <laughs> is uh, on any given day, any child can look like they have any disorder. I just want to put this out. <laughs> Especially teenagers. I'm so depressed. No, you're sad. Yeah, wait 10 minutes. Okay. So um, one of the things we watch for is something that's consistent, a problem that's consistent over time and in different situations. So... It's not a true anxiety disorder if it's only present when the child is, for instance, at their grandparents' house. That's more of someone needs to go check out what's happening at that house, <laughs> like kind of situation. <laughs> um, so in children, we see a lot of symptoms that are in the somatic arena. We may see 
um, complaints of headaches, a lot of stomach aches. Mm-hmm. Um, also, they start to avoid certain things that create anxiety for them. And depending on their age, may really not understand why or be able to verbalize it very well. Often this creates some friction within the home as the parents are kind of, you know, upping the demands that the child participate in a behavior. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, You can also see other behaviors where um, that fall more on the the compulsive or obsessive uh, spectrum. So things like checking things or repeating behaviors. Um, We also, can see if you look at kids' faces, they mirror the same emotions that adults do. So you'll see that they hmm. get uncomfortable or nervous or they kind of they're fidgety. Yeah. They'll they'll shake too. They'll become right. they'll, they'll that look just really shake and tremble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or they'll mm-hmm. completely um, close in on themselves and, and become very in, internalized and not really um, interactive. So those are the types of things if a parent seeing their child do that um, consistently, it's probably time to get that checked. And, and that is the point. Consistently over time, different different environments mm-hmm. that we see that. Mm-hmm. So for gosh, James, you know, James, we talked about this in your intro. You know, you work with population of people with higher acuity levels of anxiety, depression. Um, they come into your programming, so they're with you in your programs all day, some of them, um, adolescents and adults. So you are with these parents you see, or these people you see all day, and that is the difference. You know, it's not like we'll have kids come in the office and their parents come in and say, well, they're anxious, they're, they're having anxiety. In fact, they just have a moment of being anxious. Children oftentimes will say that to me, I'm depressed, Kelly. They don't have any clinical symptoms of depression. They're just sad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and the the population that I work with um, is within our IOP and PHP programs. And to explain that, IOP is intensive outpatient program, and PHP is partial hospitalization program. Those are higher levels of care than just you know the traditional individual couples and family counseling. Um, so they are some more severe cases that that uh, we we work with. So um, kind of going back to what is anxiety. Um, you know, the, the people that we see in our programs, they have that higher level of anxiety where, you know, they have to take time off of work. They have to, you know, find an alternative living solution um, if the, the stress is really coming from the family unit. Um, if it's kids or teens, uh, they have to take time off of their work or school. So it's pretty severe. So you, your parent, you identify your kid is, is having difficulties with, with anxiety or seems like overwhelming Isaiah. Anxiety, And I imagine because they're younger and you don't really want to start off with a medication routine with that. So maybe more focus to to uh, to James is that uh, what kind of because I, I I'm a familiar with it. So that usually if you have anxiety, you have to develop a coping strategy to kind of alleviate mm-hmm. that anxiety in some way. So I'm just mm-hmm. just curious of especially, you know, kids. And I, I really do think kids are more anxious now than where they were years ago, just because of all the things that have happened mm-hmm. the past five years. So, Absolutely. I mean, what what is what would you say to a parent that that thinks mm-hmm. their kid has anxiety, uh, has been checked out physically, and doesn't really have any physical factors? What mm-hmm. what 
what is the basic approach you would think would be best? Yeah. Well, that's tricky because a lot of times, you know, they'll come in if, if it's a child or a teenager, um, and, and there won't be a lot of understanding and a lot of questions. So the approach I would say first is really educating, not just the client or the kid, right? Giving them the vocab vocabulary for their anxiety or what they're experiencing. And then same for the, the, the parents as well. Um, you know, ways to support them, uh, ways that, you know, their anxiety seems to be manifesting physically or, you know, with their work or school. Um, so I think really the first step is just educating. And then um, for kids and teens and, and their parents, it's really just kind of having them unify as a family unit to, to support um, the kid or the teen who's suffering from anxiety. But yeah, starting with education. And then, like you said, coping skills, um, we really encourage our kids to find a coping skill that works for them and that they're drawn to, right? I'm not gonna ask a, uh, a uh, very active teenager that loves to be outside and doesn't like reading to read a book, <laughs> you know, for their coping skill, right? I'm gonna suggest run a mile, go dirt biking, something like that. Um, so, so that's another thing is that we encourage our, our kids to find something that really resonates with them. Yeah. So yeah. you would think that maybe, it sounds like you're saying that to start having a dialogue with your child and like mm -hmm. start implanting yeah. or that kind of approach where, yeah, everybody suffers from this at different levels. So it's just like working on a coping strategy that, that alleviates that, yeah. I suspect. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And also, you know, anxiety, what we have this in our program, and, um, James has built it and he's built up activity in our program for our teenagers and for our adults. Because think about it, you know, when a person, when a brain is under stress, we have a release of cortisol and adrenaline. What's the best way to deal with those, Dr. Krista? Move. Yeah. <laughs> Move. <laughs> That's what we were designed to do. So it's important that we are moving every day to keep our cortisol and adrenaline levels down to kind of get, get rid of that junk that gets released in our bloodstream and doesn't build up. So it's very important that we do that and that we laugh and have fun also. Um, so I think that's really important that, you, that you've added that in, James, that we have people moving around. And I do think that's, that my opinion is, is, and I don't know what the research, if there's any research on this, but I think one of the reasons we have a more anxious society is because people are not moving like they used to move. Mm -hmm. You know, we sit around and talk about how anxious we are, but don't, we aren't going out and physically getting, moving our bodies, which they were designed to move eight to 12 miles a day, I believe. We were designed to move quite a bit. And that's one of our big problems. It's so weird. I just kind of made this connection. I'm like, well, kids play a lot of video games. <laughs> and yeah, they, they do. And they, <laughs> you know, and they, it seems like our anxiety, uh -huh. le anxiety level is increasing. I'm like, could mm -hmm. there be a corollarium? <laughs> I don't know. You've never seen my kids play video games. Oh, it's they're very pretty, they're pretty intense. It depends on the yeah. video games, doesn't it? It depends on the video. Some there are some great video games out there. James, what are some great video games? I'm 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 profiling because you're younger. What are That's some great right. video <laughs> video games you'd recommend parents get for kids where they're going to be physically moving? Yeah. Well, we have some actually for our uh, our teens in our program. Uh, any sort of dancing game, singing game, um, just something that requires you to stand up. Even some games like uh, like Mario Kart, you can play them standing up and then you actually have to, it's some setting that you have to change, but you have to physically move the controller um, okay. or you can get a, a steering wheel as well. But yeah, there's different options, uh, sport games as well, right. um, where, where you have to use the, the 
remote or controller physically yeah. and use mm -hmm. the, the, the motion. But yeah, there's a lot yeah. of different options. Yeah, our 31-year-old, mm -hmm. that's how he exercises. He has some game <laughs> that he plays. He really loves it. And it makes sense. You might as well. He loves video games, but he also wants to exercise. So why not? Mm -hmm. Hey, what are some myths about anxiety? Hmm. I have to think about I, that one. I think one I hear people say a lot is just like, okay, just snap out of it or oh, just stop okay. it. Don't, there's <laughs> that stupid, that's not something you should worry about. Like, oh, yeah. Extremely unhelpful. <laughs> <laughs> extremely unhelpful. Yeah. Just when you're anxious, now let me shame you right, right. <laughs> and minimize yeah. you. So now you feel like you're less capable than before. So now you're feeling more anxious. <laughs> so if, if people don't suffer from anxiety, they don't really understand that it's not it's not even about a logical fear of a certain thing. You know, it, it's a state. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I think piggy, piggybacking off of that, I don't know if it's a myth, but I know for some of our clients, it's been frustrating when they figure out what it is that is specifically causing them anxiety or the situation or the circumstance in their life, what's causing the anxiety. And they, they wonder why they are still feeling the anxiety when the situation has changed uh, or they have resolved the problem. Um, I've noticed, and I, again, I don't know the research to this, maybe you can speak to this Dr. Krista, but after being in such a state for so long, mentally and physically, um, even if you solve that scenario, situation, or mental block that's causing the anxiety, their bodies almost memorize that. Yes. It's something that they still struggle with, you know, so... That's something that we're really seeing um, as of late. Absolutely. You can even see it in people's posture, um, mm. the way they hold their uh, tension. And um, it's, it's a habit at, after a while. Is it neurons that fire together, wire together? Yeah. <laughs> I was just saying, it sounds like neuropathways, just saying. Yes, it does. Yeah, <laughs> just that, you know. Neurons are fire the other way. The other interesting thing, too, it just came to me, and I don't know if there's anything to this. You know how we talk, we're really talking about mirror, mirror neurons a lot these days. Mirror, M-I-R-R-O-R, -R -R, mirror neurons. And um, when you look at mirror neurons, uh, if we have a, a society where we're talking about, you know, awful things going on, watching the news, people being upset and anxious, as um, our mirror neurons will mirror what we see in front of us because... That's how we were designed. So if you take a simple ape and it sees another ape um, eating something, that ape might start to salivate. Well, I've done the exact same kind of thing <laughs> where I suddenly have a craving for that, right? So that's my mirror neurons. You know, we see what's happening. I think it feels like I'm eating that piece of C's chocolate or whatever it is. Uh, so I wonder about that, and that may be completely off base, but maybe as we do hear more about anxiety, things that are happening in the world, it would really feel like it's mm. happening to us. Yes. Mm. And you start to feel less safe in general. Um, I had to intentionally take a lot of news out of my life. Yes. Um, Good for you. And I've started to not listen to anything in the car. Just like having those carved out intentional time of quiet and peace yes. because I'm not getting it anywhere else and recognizing yeah. that that's the world we live in. Yes. Yeah. I had to actually ban my husband from the news. <laughs> I can't <laughs> control any of it. 
Bad news. Bad. <laughs> bad news. <laughs> bad as news. I yeah. I call it news porn. Yeah. Are you watching news porn again? Yeah. Like, yeah sorry. So, hey, Greg and Dr. Krista, would you speak about that? You both had personal experiences with anxiety. When did you both first notice it, and how did it affect your daily lives? Who, Greg? You want to go first? Oh, uh, I think I've mentioned this before. You know, I I, I think there's a triad in in. Uh, in uh, behavioral health and mental health, it's, which is with, with anxiety, depression, and ADHD. And I think that those are, that little wiring center in your brain, um, you're more prevalent to it. And so then you add some childhood stressors to it. And, and um, you know, I, I meet the diagnostic criteria for it. And, and uh, so, uh, and I, they, they've been talking about this for quite a while, about putting that as a diagnosis, at least coupling anxiety and depression together, which, which is, is, to me, I always think it's the same coin, it's just different sides of it. <laughs> so, um, and just being an anxious kid and, and, and struggling with, with uh, ADD or ADHD uh, and uh, kind of environmental stuff. So it's, it, it's, um, I'm sure I could still get diagnosed for general anxiety disorder, but as I've gotten older, I've just I've developed some a lot better coping strategy for it, and even acknowledging it, yeah, that that's what's really going on is I'm just I'm kind of and I love the term flooding because that's what it feels like when it, when you're having a, a really high anxiety provoking um, situation that kind of it floods over you. And yeah, and your prefrontal yeah. cortex doesn't work yeah, as well, it's basically. it's like I've, I've never had a panic attack, but I've gotten pretty close at times. And mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and I think also it couples with PTSD, which I, uh, I, don't, I don't believe I've had that issue. But So it's all in the same area of the brain, in my opinion. And uh, I was actually, <laughs> I have the ability to kind of look stuff up, which is kind of cool. I love the internet and... You know, uh, NIH is a big study where they say anxiety and stress disorders is among the most prevalent neuropsychiatric disorders. And I'm like, sure. So I, th- I think a lot of you don't outgrow it, but you get a lot better coping strategies than when you were a little kid. Or a Hank, teenager. Greg, before, hmm? yeah, hopefully get better coping mechanisms well, I mean, and not pick, up, not pick up poor ones like alcohol. Yeah, and I was just going to say that, do. that it was yeah. a period of time yeah. that that's how I was my, quote, my self-medication was just smoking weed and drinking and, mm. you know, and um, kind of stopped working for me. So, and, and, but I really, no one was ever talked to me about like a coping strategy and identifying it and getting a strategy for it or even acknowledging it. Because I grew up in a period of time that if you were... <laughs> Younger, they, you know, if you said you were depressed, they're like, no, you're too young to get depressed. I'm like, okay. Oh, I want to jump in that. You brought me such a good point about anxiety and depression, uh, anxiety and ADHD. I know Dr. Krista gets this in her office where there's people get confused um, and people often misdiagnose with anxiety when they have ADHD or misdiagnosed or also misdiagnosed with ADD when they have anxiety. Uh, what would you say about that, Dr. Krista, from your perspective? Um, from my perspective, it can be kind of hard to um, necessarily tease them apart without specialized testing. Mm-hmm. Because, but in reality, if you're having features of both, you should treat both. Yeah. Oh, because 
anxiety um, certainly makes the symptoms of ADHD worse and vice versa. So if you have, if you are seeing elements of anxiety, you want to kind of address those. If you're seeing elements of ADHD, you want to address those. And then after you've done that, you may see, okay, all the anxiety actually resolved once we got the ADHD under control. So you don't really have an anxiety disorder or maybe it doesn't. And maybe you actually have both. You know? Okay. So then would you jump into your experience oh, with yeah. anxiety? Um, I, I find anxiety I came to as a diagnosis a little later in my life. And it's because I had um, more obvious depression. And anxiety in the medical field, um, as long as it's not out of control, can actually be a benefit at work. So ha being a little anxious, being a little extra checky, being a little more detail-oriented. Especially as a doctor, right? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And so as long as you're still functioning, it's sort of rewarded. And mm -hmm. nobody wants to be like completely chill and calm during a code blue. You know, you've got to right. go and go and go. <laughs> Thank but, you for that. Right? You don't want the surfer doctor. <laughs> right. Like, oh, okay, dude, We're, you're going to be but fine. <laughs> when you go home okay. later that night, you also don't want to be like, drinking four bottles of wine and yelling at your family. So, <laughs> so good yeah. tips. Yeah. Not an adaptive Remember that, James. <laughs> exactly. Keep that in mind. So it's a, it's a high stress field that I never met a single doctor during training that didn't look like they had some kind of disorder. And we... <laughs> That makes me feel yeah. better. <laughs> so it's so normative in that in that moment yeah. that you don't really think, oh gosh, I actually have something that's not good for me that <laughs> that I should address. But as I got older and and like you know kind of moved towards midlife, I'm like, I actually am not happy with a level of anxiety that I'm under all the time. It's not good for me. And no, my depression not. got, you know, treated. And then what was left over was sitting on the couch, feeling this overwhelming feeling of not being able to make a decision or move because there was just too much, you know. Um, and then COVID probably brought it to the point where I decided to address it because well, being a doctor COVID during was those good in that way. Mm -hmm. Well, I well, guess it's the silver lining. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> for many people, yeah. actually, hell of a lining. We did Just see saying. a lot, but we did see people coming in for more treatment. That a moment to stop and yeah, think about. Well. Yeah. Thank you for for being so forthcoming, you two. Uh, you know, I've got a lot of more questions I want to get through because this is such an interesting, important topic. Um, and then a, a lot of comments, but let's see if I can get to the questions. You know, medication. Well, that's a big. Um, always controversial for people. Should you take medication? People say, we're well, just masking the symptoms. And yet at the same time, um, you know, we do know that I, I can say this on probably every podcast, that science has now discovered that the brain is also an organ in the body. So I still am confused what? about why when we talk about anxiety, depression, why we say, well, it's psychological, it's not physical. Well, it actually 
is physical because the brain is an organ, right? And that's a physical thing in our body. So it is, we just tend to separate them out. So we would, there are times that, that many providers will provide some medication to regulate the organ and bring down those, um, that hyper response to a situation. Would you talk about some of the treatments that, that are kind of standard recommended and, and why you would recommend those, Dr. Krista, for adults or children? Sure. Um, probably the first thing we do with any patient that's anxious is we talk about how they're sleeping. And, yeah, thank you. Um, we start with the non-medication um, things. So there's so many things that people can do to improve their environment and their chances of having a good sleep. But then if they're still not sleeping well, that's something that I do try to address. And we usually use a medicine called hydroxyzine, which is not habit forming. And it's, it's an antihistamine like Benadryl, but it also oh. has some anxiety relieving components to it. Is that the same thing that if when my children were young, if I were taking them on a long distance flight, <laughs> I might have given them a little Benadryl? Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Because my pediatrician kind of said, "Hey, Cal, why don't you give them a little Benadryl? Yeah. It'll help their ears, and it'll also maybe make them calm down a little for that sixteen right, hours of life." Right. Okay, so thank you. That's mm-hmm. that's one medicine you may see a lot. Um, another class of medicines that you see a lot is something called the SSRI or serotonin selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, and those have been around for a really long time, and those help to raise the amount of serotonin in the brain, which we know people don't have enough of when they have anxiety and depression. So instead of saying, oh, I have anxiety, you can say, I have a neurotransmitter deficiency and I'm correcting it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. So (laughs) say that again, seriously, um, it'd be great for people to write this down. I have neurotransmitter deficiency. deficiency. Yeah. Okay. So there are some and I am correcting it. neurotransmitters we like to elevate a bit back up towards normal for people. And that's, that's medicines like Prozac or, um, gosh, Zoloft, things like um, Lexapro. These are all very commonly used in children. Um, you're probably going to see more Lexapro. Yeah, you do. Yeah. My children. And mm-hmm. then um, often uh, if that medicine's not working, they may add another medicine to sort of help it along. And these are a, a wide variety of medicines, but you'll probably see medicines like, um, we call them SNRIs, or, and those hit not only serotonin, but some other things like dopamine and norepinephrine. Mm-hmm. So those are probably the ones the doctor wants to give you. The ones the patients come in and ask for are Xanax and out of them. Okay. <laughs> Why is that, Dr. Krista? Okay. <laughs> because they work. And, and this is this is I put this out there because we don't like to prescribe them. These really because? are, in my mind, are band-aids. Yeah. So they work very effectively, very quickly, and make people feel relaxed, but they don't correct any of the neurotransmitters. 
So you're saying the medications that you're that you want to use for patients are actually corrective. They're kind of in a way almost like a vitamin yeah. to help the vibe, the brain get used to producing those again. As for those other ones you're talking about tend to be addictive, like Xanax right. and whatnot, correct? Yeah. Because so, anything, in other words, a client of mine, I loved her. She unfortunately died from her drug addiction after it gave her kidney um kidney problems years later and she died in her 30s lovely young lady um but she always told her children as a teenager she said if it feels good don't do it (laughs) (laughs) yeah and And that was somebody who'd been really quite a quite had a a, quite a life on the streets as an addict so and and that's uh one of those drugs that you know often most people do encounter by um being prescribed them or being given them Mm -hmm. in an er and they were often used um, in the old days we used them for sleep a lot so a lot of people mm-hmm. got used to those um, but also for panic attacks they would get a xanax right. because it breaks it immediately but then you haven't learned any other skills to handle it except for taking that pill and just a caveat for those patients who are addicts, when you go to the emergency room and you think you've had a heart attack or something like that, and they're going to try to prescribe oh, what medication? Xanax? Yeah, they'll probably, something like, yeah, they'll probably give you Xanax, but they shouldn't. Um, sometimes they'll give you Ativan or Lorazepam. I've had patients just say, I can't take that. I'm an addict. Don't give right. me the prescription. I've had people, they've, 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 it's been insisted that they take it with them. So then what they've done is in the past couple of clients have just called their sponsor yeah. and say, I'm leaving the hospital. This is what I have with me. Can you help me? Mm-hmm. Often uh, emergency room doctors are really excited that you don't want it. And they'll talk. That's great because yeah. they get people seeking it, yeah. don't they? They'll, they'll talk to you about other options and say, hey. So yeah. that's probably changed over the yeah. years. Because of all the drugs. That's a good point over all the people drug seeking. Uh, so we are just kind of looking uh, looking at time here. What are, James, what are the different treatment approaches um, for individuals for anxiety? What are some of the helpful treatment approaches? Um, again, like I said earlier, it, it really depends on the individual, but there's a few, you know, general um, approaches in, when treating anxiety. Um I'll just, in no particular order, uh, there's mindfulness where, um, a lot of times because we experiencing, we're experiencing the anxiety, it's hard for us to be present in the moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, we miss things, Mm -hmm. things go by without us even realizing, um, we get from point A to point B without even knowing how we got there. Um, and so being mindful in the practice of mindfulness is, uh, anything from, you know, yoga to breathing exercises to, uh, even mindfully eating as well. Um, so there's, it's just really a good way to practice and, and, uh, build that new habit of being present, uh, which is and really you're slowing um, your brain down there, aren't you? You're kind of slowing it down. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that's been really, um, helpful for a lot of our clients. Um, a few other ones that's been really successful for us has been uh, dialectical behavior therapy. I myself don't necessarily, um, specialize in that or, um, do those sort of classes. Uh, we have a, a therapist that does that for us um, with our clients. Um, but it, it, it offers some sort of uh, stress relieving techniques, um, yes. some specific um, breathing exercises, um, and, and really awesome acronyms on how to um, really tackle anxiety and, and depression as well. Um, but um, yeah, there's there's a lot. There's 
I mean, we even implement, like you said, um, exercise, physical movement. Um, and, nutrition. And kind of, yeah, nutrition Nutrition's as well. Nutrition is very important. Absolutely. Caffeine. Absolutely. Yeah. How much caffeine is a person drinking and then sleep, right? Always go mm-hmm. back to those basic physiological pieces. Mm-hmm. So when you come to see Dr. Krista and she says to you, if somebody has anxiety, she says, well, what's happening for your sleep? You know, therapists can help you work on sleep just for the general population listening to that. This is something that we do work with people on helping them learn how to um, calm their mind down um, and be able to get themselves into a relaxed state so that they can go to sleep. Or as they say, okay. better sleep hygiene. That's my favorite term. Yeah, it's <laughs> just, to, just basically do all of the things that you should be doing before you decide that you want to take meds. Okay. Mm. Um, couple more, couple more issue, things I want to ask you about. Uh, what really, when you think about this, uh, what strategies can people use to manage or to prevent? eventually getting anxiety. You said you didn't have it till later in life, Dr. Krista. What are some things that people can do to prevent or manage anxiety? What would you say oh, to prevent it? I, I would really talk to them about um, the mindfulness that James was talking about, like having a time every day where they're stopping and sort of checking in. Um, there are some different religious traditions that have set that into the daily routines where you're actually stopping um sort of getting yourself in a quiet thing uh place and and thinking about your day um the other thing is being aware of your physical state and how you're feeling and then keeping track of am i not exercising am i not doing the things to help protect myself am Mm -hmm. i not getting good sleep Am I not getting good sleep, not exercising, and throwing in a bunch of alcohol and caffeine to keep going? Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. that's sort of a um, an anxiety state waiting to happen. It's not necessarily going to produce generalized anxiety disorder, but it's certainly going to, in the end, um, create more anxiety for you long term. Good. Thank you. And then. You know, this is the other segues into how can family and friends support people with anxiety because, you know, obviously not saying things like you have no reason not to be anxious. But we do know that we are, you know, uh, communal animals. Uh, we really rely on other people. And when other people are calm, we can feel calm. We know that if somebody uh, has a traumatic event, one of the most important things they can do is see their family and friends right away. And when you've seen people in the emergency room, Dr. Krista, from an accident, who do they want to see right away? Um, usually their spouse or their parent. Spouse <laughs> mm-hmm. mm-hmm. yeah. or parent? Yeah. They want to see them right away, very calming yeah. for them, right? So it just calms our brain. When our parent is calm, our spouse is calm, we can be calm. Uh, Greg and I were broken down in the desert yesterday. That was super fun. It was 115 degrees out. Fortunately, we did have internet. Um, but I was not doing very well in that moment because that is not my favorite experience, car issues. Uh, But Greg was very calm about the whole thing and that allowed me to stay calm and not um, cry. You <laughs> cried a little bit. I don't like being bit. broken down in the desert. I a little bit, but I, you know, it was, I was really yeah. tired. <laughs> so, <laughs> it was a tough trip. So there you have, 
It was a tough trip, and we got home, and it was nothing like seeing. The other thing that calmed the anxiety, speak to this, the other thing, of course, that helped me the most was when I got home to my puppy. Um, nothing like animals, and I do want to do an episode. I'm going to talk to ask this. I'm going to contact, actually, we'd love to do an episode on animals and how they regulate our brain and how we evolved with them to regulate our brains. Um, so I'm very excited about that as well. So get an animal. And we do sometimes, James and I have done this, we've prescribed, and maybe you have too, Dr. Dr. Krista, we've prescribed for children that, who, that they get an animal, that they get a pet. And of course, besides reducing their anxiety and helping them, you know, increasing their oxytocin, which makes them feel calm and those kinds of things, it also teaches them responsibility. Mm-hmm. So I think animals are super important. Greg, anything you want to ask? Uh, no, I just, I mean, my <laughs> my man on the street advice is just to uh, talk about it, express like, yeah, I'm, this is making me anxious, or and always is is talk about what's going on. And if you're not if you're not getting that from your family, or you don't feel you're able to do that, then just find a professional. Because a yeah. lot of this is mm-hmm. just it takes a lot of power out of it when you talk about it. You know, when you say mm-hmm. that you're this is this makes me anxious or I'm anxious about this and and you're probably pleasantly surprised that most people can relate to it, you know, that and yeah. Yeah. and it it's just but some well some well it's just some people are better at it than others. And uh mm-hmm. that's all. Because <laughs> it's mm-hmm. I think a yeah. a large part of it is a wiring thing. I see your brain going over the dark crystal. What <laughs> oh, are you yeah. yeah. I just remembered there's a, um, some decent studies actually looking at the effect of laughing oh, on yeah. anxiety. Oh, yeah. Laughter mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, you don't want the kind of laughing where you're making fun of people. You want the kind no. of laughing where you're belly laughing for yeah. something that's just funny. So if yeah. you can find something every day <laughs> and laugh. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a little self-deprecating humor, some people may disagree with this, but I think a little self-deprecating humor is kind of fun because it makes me take myself not so seriously and I don't have to be so perfect because we know anxiety can come from, from tendency to feel one has to be perfect and do everything right so we can just laugh at ourselves and know, well, that's just not my, my area of strength, you know? <laughs> yeah, and then piggybacking off of what Greg said, you know, yeah, just talk about it. Sometimes... When we talk about it with a professional or, you know, a trusted individual, we, we start to realize things that are causing our anxiety or making it worse. You know, I, I had this friend who, it was when I was in, in grad school, and uh, he was in grad school as well. He was like, I, I don't know what's going on. For the past two weeks, every time I lie down at night, go to bed at like 10, I can't go to sleep. And it, it takes me like four or five hours to go to sleep, but then I eventually go to sleep. And I was like, okay, well, what are you thinking about when you're laying down? So I was kind of practicing being a therapist for a second um, before I had my my numbers. Um, And he said, well, I'm just thinking about my day, you know, what happened. And just it's I don't have time to think about it when I'm awake. So when I lie down, then it's just going through my head. It's almost like it's replaying. Uh And so I said, well, okay, what are you doing throughout the day? Well, I wake up at four o'clock, get to my first job at 430 in the morning. Um, I get off of that job um, around noon. I drive straight over uh, in an hour drive to my other job, uh, eat lunch on the way in the car. Then I work there from one to about 
nine or 10 at night. Oh and my I'm gonna gosh, go home. I'm exhausted. And I was like, and you're going to grad school? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, well, how about, you know, if, if one of your bosses will allow, can you get like 30 minutes or an hour between the two jobs where you can just, just sit in your car? Don't drive, just sit in your car, listen to something, think about your day. Um, because it sounds like you're just going and going. So when you finally, your head finally hits that pillow at night, you're then taking that time to think. And so he did that and um, it, it helped. It really helped. You know, just that simple 30 minutes where he didn't realize he was just going through the motions. Now he's oh. able to kind of work it through. James, that was wonderful. Good. And you really <coughs> were able to just see that he needed some time to just bring himself down and maybe use some mindfulness practice and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. James, years ago, I had a woman who worked in a casino. She was an older lady, and she was experiencing terrible anxiety. And we talked about it. Really, she was an introvert, and what was creating anxiety was the environment that she worked in. Mm -hmm. Think about a casino. Bright lights, lots of sounds, lots of visual stimulation. But she really couldn't really give this job up. It would be very financially devastating for her to give this up. She was already living kind of on the edge. Um, so what we did is we made her car her oasis. So she would have wonderful scents in her car, soft music, herbal tea on the way to work. Um, and then on her break, she would run to her car and she'd have some really calming, relaxing food and she'd listen to some meditation. And as soon as she got in the car on the way home, it would be the same thing. She'd get home and keep her lights down and try to do everything the opposite of what she was experiencing in that casino and certainly taking a shower and getting that smoke off as soon as she got home. So those kinds of things really helped her to just think about that physiological you know, environment that we're in. Our environment does make us anxious or can cause anxiety. Hey, thanks so much for listening to today's episode of Caveman and Counselor, where we bring you a unique blend of professional insights and practical perspectives on behavioral health. If you like what you heard, please don't hesitate to share this episode with others. And don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date on future episodes. And hey, for those who'd like to support our work, we have a Patreon page where you can make a donation and gain access to exclusive content. Thank you for listening. Until next time, remember, take care of your mental health.